With a couple of minor glitches, Joshua and his Israelite army have successfully conquered a vast swathe of land between Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean Sea. The battles are largely over and settlement is now the order of the day. The book of Joshua spends the next nine chapters, more than a third of the book, describing in detail how Canaan is divided up among the tribes and who gets what. These chapters are really just an elaborate list of place names and as a result they fail to feature on many people's go-to passages of scripture. Still, they make fascinating reading and the Holy Bible podcast leaves no page unturned. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 54, Seek and Destroy. got on the bus, we're getting properly stuck into the Bible's sixth book, Joshua. If you want a little context, head back to episode one. Episodes are only around 20 minutes long, so you'll be with us in no time, well, in around 18 hours anyway. Any quotes are taken from the New International Version of the Bible, and though measurements are in Imperial, I put the metric conversions in the show notes. Lastly, the purpose of this podcast. Why demystify this ancient text and repurpose it for those who are less religiously minded? My belief is that the Bible belongs to everyone, not just religious people. I hope you get something out of it. Right, we're heading back across the river. The account of Israel's settlement kicks off with a reminder of the territories ruled over by the Amorite kings Sihon and Og, a vast region to the northwest of the Dead Sea. The account names multiple towns and landmarks whose exact location is now unclear, but readers are reminded that the two kings were defeated by Moses and the Israelites. The writer treats Moses with special reverence, referring to him repeatedly as the servant of the Lord and explains how he gave the king's land to Reuben, Gad, and some of Manasseh's clans. The book lists the 31 kingdoms which have been eviscerated by Israel, and whose land is now available to be settled in. One of the Canaanite kings dispossessed of his fiefdom is Goyim. This name actually means nation, and the word Goy is used over 500 times throughout the Torah to denote nations other than Israel. The Torah, for those of you unfamiliar with the word, is simply the Jewish name for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's only in the first and second centuries AD that the term Goy becomes synonymous with a non-Jewish person. At this point, the narrative jumps forwards in time to a point where Joshua is an old man and when there is still land that needs to be conquered, suggesting that the Israelites remain in a single encampment for some time. Readers are told how God alerts Joshua to his outstanding to-do list. The southwestern coastal fringe and the southern border with Arabia ruled by the Philistines, Geshurites and Avites remain unconquered. The order to seek and destroy then tracks the coastline north until it reaches the port of Byblos and Mount Hermon in northern Lebanon. According to the book, God promises to drive out the Sidonian tribes from the mountains of Lebanon himself, incorporating this land into what he calls Israel's inheritance. The writer then details the geographical reach of the tribal region that lies east of the Jordan. The place names aren't especially helpful, 
but readers at the time would have been able to pinpoint cities and landmarks that today seem quite nebulous. The general vibe of the Transjordan is that it roughly equates with today's southern Syria and northern Jordan. In this account, King Og of Bashan is described as the last of the biblical giants, known as the Rephaites, and readers are told that the Israelites failed to drive out the people of Geshur and Makkah. Geshur in the Transjordan is clearly different to Geshur on the Mediterranean coast and appears to have been a small, non-threatening kingdom who the Israelites seem happy to live alongside. Readers are reminded that the Levites are not given any tribal land as they receive food that has already been prepared by the other tribes who bring them as offerings to the tabernacle and so don't need to farm. The Israelites' new homeland stretches from Sidon in the north to Kadesh in the south, includes a 180-mile coastal strip of the Mediterranean and stretches east as far as Ramoth, around 56 miles inland. It surrounds both the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, and the entire area covers approximately 60,000 square miles. The book then spells out in detail the allocation of the Transjordanian lands to Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The Reubenites are settled here first, having been given land taken from the Amorite king Sihon. Readers learn that in the campaign against Sihon and his Transjordanian neighbour Og, Israel's army also defeated five of Sihon's Midianite allies. At this time, Balaam, the eloquent seer from episodes 39 and 40, who refused to curse Israel, is singled out for execution. The context suggests that Balaam was allied to the Midian princes who put up resistance to Moses' army, hence the need for reparations once the fighting was over. Gad's territory sits immediately to the north of Reuben's and follows the River Jordan up as far as the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It forms a rough V-shape, as if holding up the eastern part of Manasseh's territory with two fingers. Manasseh's landmass is vast, and the eastern part contains much of what was once the kingdom of Bashan, until its gigantic King Og was defeated by Moses' army. The territory stretches from just north of present-day Amman to just south of the Sea of Galilee, and continues east from the river for around 50 miles. Joshua reiterates that the division is decided by Lot, no doubt using the Urim and Thummim to help him determine who gets what. These are believed to be small, divinely endowed rocks carried by the high priest which, when rolled, suggest a yes, no, this one, that one answer. Joshua stresses that no Levites are given any land because they are provided for by gifts brought to the tabernacle. However, he honours Moses' wishes that Israel's priests and their tribe of helpers should be allocated cities with pasture for their animals. These animals are possibly those which are needed for sacrifices at the tabernacle. Forty-five years after he is sent on a reconnaissance mission by Moses, Joshua's fellow survivor from Egypt asks for his reward. Before Caleb approaches Joshua, readers are told that the cohort of tribes who will share land in Israel numbers 12, because Joseph's two sons were both given a tribe each. For the third time in as many chapters, the writer reminds readers that the Levites are given only towns and pasture for their flocks, but no inheritable land. Caleb is Joshua's fellow scout from years earlier, and the only other man to make it out alive as an adult from Egypt to Canaan. Despite crossing the Red Sea with Moses, Caleb was never a slave like the Israelites, having been born an Egyptian. 
As such, he would also have had brown skin, making him one of only a handful of non-white characters mentioned in the Bible. Others are the Queen of Sheba, who visits King Solomon, a man named Simeon, who teaches in the church at Antioch in the New Testament Book of Acts, as well as the Ethiopian eunuch who meets Philip the Evangelist on the road to Gaza, also in Acts. Caleb reminds his leader of the events years earlier that paved the way for the settlement that Joshua is currently stage managing. He tells him that he was 40 years old when Moses sent him to reconnoitre Canaan, and he reminds him how their fellow spies came back with such terrifying reports that Israel lost its collective mojo and decided that pushing on into the promised land might be more trouble than it was worth. Those of you unfamiliar with the espionage mission should head back to episode 36 for a bit more background. Caleb tells Joshua how Moses promised him land that he and his children would own forever as a reward for being so loyal to God. Despite now being 45 years older, Caleb swears that he is still as strong as he was back then and still as keen to fight God's battles. However, he feels that the time is right to cash in his inheritance and claim what is rightfully his, the land promised him by Moses. Joshua doesn't hesitate. Caleb has followed God wholeheartedly and he hands his old friend the city of Hebron in the hill country midway between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean coast. Hebron is clearly a high-status city and a real trophy for Caleb. It previously belonged to the Anakite's greatest leader, a warrior called Arbor. These are the same Anakites whose gigantic physical stature spooked Caleb and Joshua's fellow spies on their initial reconnaissance into Canaan, and so it seems poetic justice that Caleb should be given the jewel in the crown of the Anakites' kingdom. All fighting has now ceased, and the book of Joshua turns its attention to the settlement west of the river. An entire chapter is dedicated to the land allocated to Judah, the second largest territory after Manasseh. Judah's border begins at the southern tip of the Dead Sea and runs southwest towards Egypt before heading north and looping back around to join the Dead Sea at its northern tip. Judah is home to several major cities that will see action later on in the Bible. Bethlehem, Lachish and Hebron are all within its borders. However, Joshua's brother-in-arms proves that his fighting days are not over by expanding Israel's territory even further. According to the book, Caleb doesn't relax simply because he's been given land. He proves that he still has fight left in him by driving away three kings to the south of Hebron. From here, he marches off to kick out the pagans living in a region called Debir. Any quick online search for the territories listed in Joshua's book will show how tricky it is to place all of these regions accurately on a map. Even the layout of the 12 tribal areas differs depending on which map you look at. Many of these places are only referred to in the Bible and were no doubt written down at a time when many people still knew where they could be found. As an example, Debir might have been just south of Hebron or a lengthy march north, and any attempt to definitively say where these locations are precisely is unscientific, even for a book that is as unscientific as the Bible. As his men approach Debir, Caleb offers the hand of his daughter Aksa in marriage to the warrior who attacks and captures the kingdom. His nephew, Othniel, is the champion who succeeds in this particular challenge and later becomes one of the leaders whose story is told in the Book of Judges. 
Caleb's daughter is confident enough to not only ask her father to give her and her husband a field, she bypasses her husband completely, asking her father to bless them by throwing in some freshwater springs to add to the dry wasteland they've been granted in the Negev. Why Othniel takes a back seat is uncertain, but he possibly doesn't want to come across as grasping, and so lets his wife do the negotiation. Axa's boldness pays off, and she walks away with a couple of springs to add to her property portfolio. Meanwhile, readers are given a long list of towns that fall within Judah's territory, and are told that the tribe is unable to unseat the Jebusites who are living in Jerusalem. As the favoured son of Jacob and the man whose success and power helped the Israelites thrive in Egypt, Joseph's two tribes are granted by far the most land in the new Israel. The territory given to the descendants of Joseph's sons Manasseh and Ephraim is vast. It stretches from Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean and from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee. Despite being the son who receives his father's blessing, the allocation is done by Lot, and so Ephraim is given a considerably smaller plot than Manasseh. Ephraim lies south of Manasseh, and, unlike its sister tribe, it doesn't encroach into the land east of the river. The only significant town in Ephraim is Bethel, the city where Jacob once dreamed of a stairway leading to heaven. According to the book, Ephraim's warriors are unable to displace the Canaanites who live in the southwest of their territory, although these people must now work as lackeys, carrying out forced labour on Ephraim's land. Before the book details the area known as West Manasseh, it explains that the land was allocated to Manasseh's son, Machir. It seems unlikely that Machir would still be alive. He'd need to be at least 200 years old, and it's impossible that he would make it to Canaan when the official story is that only Joshua and Caleb left Egypt as adults and made it to the Promised Land. Machir is credited with being a warrior whose people settled in and around the Transjordan, and this land is given to Manasseh in honour of him. Attention now turns to the women who petitioned Moses to allow them land, even though their fathers Lophahad and their husbands are dead, and they have no brothers or sons. Honouring Moses' promise, land is given to them in Manasseh, and is to be theirs to pass on to future generations, possibly the world's first successful example of women's rights. To maintain their tribal land, Zelophehad's daughters must marry within their tribe, a ruling known as endogamy. For those who like obscure words, marrying outside a tribal group is called exogamy. Given its size, West Manasseh doesn't have a huge amount of famous cities. The ones that receive airtime in the Bible are the sanctuary city of Shechem, the gateway city of Gilgal, and Megiddo, better known as Armageddon. Manasseh also shares border cities with the tribal areas of Asher and Issachar, but, like the tribe of Ephraim, it is unable to drive out the locals, subjecting them instead to forced labour. Despite having by far the largest chunk of land, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh complain to Joseph that their territory is too small for such a large amount of people. Joshua's solution is simple. If they need more land, they should grab more land. Forests can be cleared and made habitable, he says, but this still isn't enough for the tribes. They worry that their enemies will come at them with iron chariots, but Joshua bats their concerns away, granting them the wooded hill country believed to lie to the south of Manasseh's Transjordanian territory. He assures them that they have the chops to overcome anything the Canaanite resistance can throw at them, before casting lots for all the other tribes. 
Nazarite camp then gathers together at Shiloh, a central hilly location in the region settled by Israel's most powerful tribe, Ephraim. It's at Shiloh that the tabernacle is set up and it remains here as a semi-permanent sanctuary for the next 200 years. Seven tribes have yet to receive any land and the sense is that Joshua feels his people have been dragging their heels. He orders three men from each tribe to go and assess the remaining available country. These men are to act as surveyors and must compile a written report to be handed to Joshua. The land must then be divided into seven parts and will be allocated by lot. It's an incredibly efficient and organised game plan and the scouts return to Shiloh with their findings. Overseen by Joshua, Eleazar the priest and Israel's tribal leaders, the mystical rocks used by Israel's leaders to decide things are rolled and the land is divided accordingly. First up is Benjamin. This is Israel's smallest tribe and, appropriately, it receives one of its smallest territories, a horizontal oval sandwiched between Ephraim in the north and Judah in the south. It may be diminutive, but Benjamin punches above its weight when it comes to significant cities. Both Bethlehem and Jericho are here, as are Samuel's birthplace of Ramah and Mizpah, another location that plays a central role in Samuel's story and which later becomes the centre of government for post-exile Israel. The eagle-eared among you will be thinking that Bethlehem has already been allocated to Judah. It has, but the town sits on the border between Judah and Benjamin and so is shared by both tribes. Next out of the bag is Simeon, followed by Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali and Dan. Among Simeon's geographical treasures is the city of Beersheba, where both Abraham and Isaac made peace treaties and which today is a bustling city of over 200,000 people. Similar to the present-day nations of Lesotho, Vatican City and San Marino, which are entirely surrounded by one other country, the entirety of Simeon exists within the nation of Judah, which circles it like a giant misshapen donut. The reason the Bible gives for this is that Judah has more land than it needs, allowing plenty of space for Simeon within its borders. Zebulun is the first of the tribes to colonise the land north of Manasseh and is equally as landlocked as Simeon. However, it has many neighbours. While Manasseh is to the south, it later sees Asher to the west, Naphtali to the north and Issachar to the east. It is tiny, but unlike Benjamin, it contains no cities of any note. Asher fares better. The ports of Tyre and Sidon are on its long Mediterranean seaboard as it stretches north into Lebanon. Issachar is another of the smaller land allocations and squats on the northeastern corner of West Manasseh with the Jordan flowing down its east coast. Its only other significant landmark is Mount Tabor, a mountain that marks the junction of Galilee's north-south highway with the east-west highway of the Jezreel Valley. Unsurprisingly for such a significant landmark, the mountain is shared by two other tribes, squatting on the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. Naphtali owns the entire west coast of the Sea of Galilee, which at the time of conquest is called the Sea of Kinnereth and stretches up alongside Asher to the east until it reaches Lebanon. That just leaves Dan to inherit whatever is left. This last piece of tribal territory curls round the southwestern corner of Ephraim and sits above the Philistine lands that stretch south along the Mediterranean. Dan's land includes the seaport of Joppa, where Jonah later sets off on a voyage which he hopes will take him away from God. 
The Book of Joshua adds that Dan later loses its land but conquers some replacement territory nearby which is also named Dan. Finally, the Israelites award Joshua with some land that can remain in his own family forever. He chooses a town in the hill country of Ephraim, possibly to keep an eye on the progress this particular tribe might be making in clearing woodland. The town is called Timnath Serah and was destroyed in the first century AD. Despite plenty of guesswork, archaeologists are still unable to pinpoint its location. So, not a lot of drama, but plenty of action. With settlement underway, all seems, well, settled for the nation of Israel. However, trouble is never far away, and one particular decision by the tribes east of the river sends Joshua into a tailspin and puts the entire country on red alert. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Feel free to follow us on Twitter or Facebook. That's Holy Bible, W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. And if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star review wherever you're listening? Thank you. Thank you.